Hi, my name's Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. My name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we're very excited to welcome Anne Howells, who's the clinical nurse from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Palliative and Supportive Care Service. Hi, Anne. Hello. Nice to meet you, Jesse and Liz. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you. Now, this is a really important topic that a number of our new grad nurses notice that, you know, everybody is obviously going to die. We know that. It's inevitable. But even in a hospital, so many people are afraid of working with people or dying or having conversations once that has occurred. And can you tell us, first of all, a little bit about how you came to be in this job? Oh, yes, Liz. Um I began my training many years ago, 1977, when I started my training. And uh, I was trained in general and also in mental health nursing. I found myself in the medical field a lot. I had some care to give to people in end of life. And then I found myself developing an interest in more specialist palliative care. When I first worked in palliative care, that was in South Australia, uh, in Adelaide. I worked in a hospice there in the late 80s, and that really ignited my passion for palliative care. Since then, I have stuck with palliative care in many settings, whether that's the community, the um, large teaching hospital as part of a consulting team, uh, palliative care units, specialist units, um, and hospice work. So many of our new grads who are listening now might just think, I could never do that work. If you can cast your mind back um, to, you know, the late 70s, uh, when you first came across a patient who you realised was reaching end of life, did you used to be a little bit scared too back then? Yes. um, Yes, I was not scared, more a little bit nervous. Was I doing the right thing? I do remember in my training, the nuns actually who were in the hospital uh, were quite strict that we would never leave a patient alone. Uh, Of course, families, it wasn't so free then for families to come in any time of day or night. So particularly on night duty, you'd have to really be aware if someone was dying and keep a close eye on them and sit with them when you could when you got the opportunity and I think that eventually uh, made me feel stronger and more confident with these patients and just being a presence for them became more important for me and less scary. It, it is the ultimate high stakes game isn't it we literally only get one shot at it there's very few things in what we do that we get one go at. That's right, Jesse. Totally, it's 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 our opportunity to do the best we can for that person in the last moments or hours or days of their life. It's important to do the 
the very best we can because we're not going to get feedback from them. And I always, I always like to remember that. You've got a lovely philosophy. We were just talking about it earlier that you kind of wanted to share before we get into your five things about why you feel so passionate about palliative care. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, Liz. I feel that no matter what area we as nurses work in or choose to specialise in, I think it would be unrealistic to expect that we would never have to deal with death, dying, challenging conversations and situations. So when we enter the nursing field, we're, we're committing to caring for our patients, whether that's either curing or fixing things, as much as facing and assisting with end-of-life cares for the terminally ill and their loved ones. And I believe that the highest possible end-of-life care includes an experience that's free from undue hardship and suffering for that dying person and their loved ones. These people, when they're dying, have the same fundamental needs for comfort, support and proper care for the remainder of their life as any other patient. Terrific. Yeah, I think it's it's something we don't think about a lot is our operating philosophy of the type of care that we give. Um, It's such a great place to launch into then the practical breakdown of how to do that well. So thank you so much for sharing that philosophy of care. Right. So, and could you tell us what's your number one thing do you think we need to think about when we're looking after someone around end of life care? I'm going to choose optimal symptom management as my number one thing. The reason for that is that the dying person has the right to be free from pain and distressing symptoms. Often when someone is dying, their symptoms can escalate they can become more distressed for many reasons. So as a nurse, it's my responsibility to ensure that they have things in place, whether that's PRN medication, if needed, of course, I think that's an international term that most people would understand, or whether it's regular medication. Normally for the dying person, it would be what we call a syringe driver, a a, a continuous subcutaneous infusion. Because of course, many people, most people as they're dying are unable to swallow medication. Um, Subcutaneous delivery of medication is very non-invasive. It's not a traumatic thing for them, very small little pump, just delivering a nice recipe of analgesia, sometimes an antiemetic, sometimes an anxiolytic, just to make sure that they're comfortable and peaceful. And that can be tweaked at any time depending on their needs throughout the day or the shift, their PRN needs. So in that, we're going to manage their symptoms as best as possible. There are people who will only need a PRN medication occasionally, but depending on their diagnosis, we would have a fair idea as to what to expect their symptoms to be. Terrific. And I know we'll probably grace this in some of the other talking points, but there are somewhat predictable pathways that we see in dying. And having the symptom management forefronted actually allows us to kind of get a pattern and a structure in place that we can then evaluate it against as well. Because we look at a lot of other areas of our nursing and medical therapy and we actually assess, we plan, we implement it, and then we evaluate it. So it 
it's not always just a case by case basis. There's going to be those variations, but there's there's a pattern to this, just like there is to chest pain assessment or abdominal pain assessment. Absolutely, Jesse, and and I do encourage nurses to take ownership of their own assessment. Make your own assessment. Um, assess that patient. Decide what you're going to do to deal with that assessment to alleviate that uh, symptom for the patient and follow up on the efficacy of the medication you've delivered or the treatment you've given and also documenting and sharing that knowledge with others. And just, Mm -hmm. I think just like anything else, the pattern recognition is developed through experience and reflection as well. So, if you have an opportunity as a caregiver and it's not being invasive into the family experience or inserting yourself into their story, spending some time around death and dying is allows us to actually understand it, recognise it, recognise when it's approaching. Um, even in patients that we that aren't on that end of life care pathway or plan, plan. so like the, there's a lot of because we're so geared towards acute practice in hospital systems we often don't know what dying looks like as it approaches and um, I think there's there's a benefit there for actually recognizing deterioration and Mm. recognizing that some patients that are still being actively and aggressively acutely treated are dying Mm. one of the things that I've heard a lot you know Jesse and I background is both in intensive care Mm. um, and sometimes you know people talk about giving opioids and people have this experience like, oh, no, like my granddad got morphine and then he died really quickly and we don't want Mm. that, we want them around. Do you find that fear with opioids continues? Oh, definitely, Liz. There's still a fear around with with some patients or their families. Um, They're reluctant to take an opioid for pain relief. We just sit down with them. First of all, find out why they have that fear. They might have had a previous bad experience or heard someone else's story. Um, However, they don't realise that we give opioids as a form of relieving pain. Their body uses that drug differently in order to alleviate their pain, which is real. If someone who doesn't have pain or the need for analgesia in opioid form takes it for other reasons, that's not appropriate. The use of opioids for people with real pain is very appropriate and their body will not become addicted to it. It's responding to their needs. Mm. And isn't there some research that if we can keep people who are on palliative care comfortable, less anxious, they're actually more inclined to live longer than people who are actually in pain while they're dying? Absolutely. And and not only that, it also gives them better quality of whatever time they have left. So, Anne, you've talked a lot about the pharmaceutical kind of interventions for symptom management. Uh, Is there things that we can do that don't involve drugs as well? Absolutely, Liz, and I think it's very important for us all to to remember that when we're caring for our patient. There's a huge role for non-pharmaceutical interventions that we as nurses can attend to. Simple things, practical things, like our patient who has metastatic cancer, perhaps they've got bony mets, um, perhaps they're quite debilitated and frail. I think we need to be looking at the bed they're in, the mattress they're on, and make sure that we've ordered a nice bed 
with air mattress for them and uh, try and expedite that don't don't hang around for two days and come back you know to your shift the following day and find it hasn't been done that's very important Dying patients don't ask for much. So their, their comfort on a nice mattress is important. Their positioning, that's very important. So before running to the medication cabinet, sometimes a little shift in position, pop a pillow behind their shoulders, behind their lower back, things like that can help a lot. Check um, their bladder. They may need a, need a bladder scan. Have they got a full bladder? If any of us are urgently needing to pass urine, we're very uncomfortable yeah. and we're strong and well. Mm. So if you are retaining urine as a sick patient, um, you can get very, very uncomfortable, very restless. And, you know, giving someone more drugs or medication is not going to fix that. So do a bladder scan. Be aware of your alternate options. Um, things like music, oil burners. It might sound very... Dippy dippy, but it's not. <laughs> it I think most difference. of us would love that. Mm. We like to make the, a nice ambient environment wherever we are, whether we're at home, whether we're in bed. If we're unwell, these are things that a lot of people might enjoy to help them relax. I also love the um, the value of a nice tepid sponge. People who have brain tumours or a source to their brain in the form of strokes often run quite hot and sticky and clammy, and um, just because they've had a sponge or a wash earlier in the day does not mean that we can't go and just get some warm wipes, sponge them down, just the back of the neck, the forehead, the chest wall, the forearms, just to keep keep them nice and cool, comfortable and yeah, refreshed. Yes. Refreshed. That's As a new grade in oncology, <laughs> I worked with a fantastic clinical nurse who's a friend to this day who would drag us around and do foot rub rounds in yeah. the evening. Um, mm. Just just cause mm-hmm. um, it, whenever there was that s- sort of breather of a spare moment, which I, I know a lot of us feel like doesn't exist anymore, um, but that we'd actually prioritise that like a tuck mm. in and foot rub round. Exactly. And what a difference it makes. Yeah. Mm. You know, someone feels really special when someone, when you come and do that. Wonderful, Anne. So that leads us to your number two point, how important it is to maintain a person's dignity while they're dying. What does that actually mean to you? I think it means that we're helping that person maintain their sense of self, their identity, and we're going to treat them as a living human being until they die. Uh, I think the sense of who they are is very important. We want to encourage them to maintain that. It's important that they are cared for fastidiously because they're not able to do that anymore for themselves. And it's not necessarily right to expect that the family will do that. Sometimes they love to help or participate, but they're also grieving and about to lose someone. So I think it's important to make sure that um, their care is prioritised every morning when you come on shift, and likewise any shift, but most important that they have a good, proper sponge bath, hygiene cares, their hair is brushed Their teeth are washed. Even if they're dentures, take them out, wash them. Their mouth is clean. Some patients love to have perfumes, lotions, and particularly one of my own bugbears is, uh, you know, the fashion here in hospitals, purple gowns, patterned gowns, white (laughs) gowns. And people 
especially families, forget that they're actually, you're actually allowed to take your own clothes into hospital. Yeah. And if you're dying, um, there are not going to be multiple IV cannulas, attachments to your body, because that's all been established and sorted out. So encourage the patient, encourage the families to bring in their favourite boxer shorts, pyjamas, stretchy nighties, T-shirts, whatever they would normally wear. It gives them that sense of identity, maintaining them, their sense of identity, and the family can look at them as familiar. Yeah. Familiar. Yeah. I, I think I, I love that, and I love that that's the, that's the core principle when you're talking about dignity because I think we get uh, way off track with it, and mm. it's about actually rehumanising someone that the system totally de-identifies. So, that's right. Uh, that we, mm. They become patients, and then it's yes. that transition back to I see, I see very much end-of-life care as giving that person themselves back for mm. the, that they've handed over to us for a, a long period of time quite often. Exactly, Jesse. And then also giving them back yeah. to their family yes. as who they are, who they were in life, yes. not who they were in this last part mm. of their illness. So, exactly, Jesse. Yeah. And demedicalizing things as much as possible yeah. and focusing on those important things that give them that sense of self. Right. Shall we go to number three? And I think this is one where... It doesn't matter how senior or how junior you are, lots of people, including the public, struggle with this. So your number three is recognising that death is approaching. Um, Why do you think we struggle so much with this in the hospital environment, Anne? Well, I worry that we get so caught up on curing and fixing things that it's difficult for us to admit or acknowledge that things have changed and that we are not going to be successful in getting that patient home. Uh, it's, of course, it's not a failure on our part. Death happens as part of life. But we're allowed to recognise it. We're allowed to speak about it. It's not a failure. It's important uh, to recognise symptoms that develop and it's an important medical and nursing skill. So, Anne, to sort of help move move this into something tangible, what are some of the common features um, through experience and through the literature that what does death look like as it approaches? Um, when death is imminent, uh, a rapidly impending death, the patient, you'll notice some symptomatic changes in the patient and the family will notice these things too and they're going to ask you about them. Um, they will become less conscious, less responsive, um, you'll notice some peripheral shutdown. Um, always I like to go in and pick someone's hand up from under the blanket and just touch it. Um, it might look like I'm just touching their hand, but I'm having a wee look there to see um, is there some peripheral shutdown happening, which there often is. Um, limbs might become more edematous. They're retaining some fluid, less urine output, and, of course, changes to the breathing pattern, which is can be quite obvious. Um, and also people may become more chesty or rattly. In the old days, it was known as the death rattle. Mm. It's heralded in, you know, rapidly approaching death. I don't like to call it the death rattle, but um, it's it, it happens to a lot of people, not to everyone, mm. not at all to everyone. But I think it's important that all these things are explained to families as they happen, even try and anticipate them so that when they happen, the families aren't alarmed. And you're stepping in to alleviate as much as you can and to reassure them and reassure the patient. Mm. 
And it is terrifying, isn't it, for families? And you'll often hear families say when someone's approaching death, you know, I'm really worried. My grandma didn't have breakfast this morning and we tried to blend it up and we tried Mm. to feel them. And, you know, to be able to say with confidence, look, as the body is shutting down, it's important not to put food in because if the stomach is is shutting down, you don't want it sitting because it could cause discomfort or they could make them sick. And I think once people understand that, then mm. they don't feel like I'm, I'm failing to advocate or I'm not taking care of this person. Um, we're just allowing for things to happen, aren't we? Yes, and I think it's human nature for us to want to nourish our loved ones when they're sick. Um, sometimes it's all we can do is to bring in a lovely soup from home. Um, but we need to remember, yes, the body is shutting down and that includes the ability to swallow. Mm. The ability to swallow drops off. It becomes quite difficult to swallow. And by pushing someone to swallow, they can actually aspirate, they can get even more uncomfortable. So we always say to families and to patients, have what you fancy, when you fancy it, and as much of it as you want. And I explain to families, sometimes it's just a couple of teaspoons of ice cream at four o'clock in the morning. Gives someone a bit of pleasure and a bit of thrill, they've had enough, and that's it. It's Mm. just what they fancy, when they fancy it. But certainly when people are unconscious... And uh, it's it's that's why we need to shift more to keeping their mouth lovely and fresh, keeping their teeth clean, that sense of moistness and freshness. You can even put a swab in a, a nice Pinot Noir and <laughs> swab it around the, yeah. the buccal mucosa. Yeah. Um, and, and lots of people have done that, or even a nice beer for mm. well, we, uh, a man who appreciates that. <laughs> yeah, we, we did some oral swabs with a very nice whiskey that yeah. a um, family brought in for That's their loved right. ones. And, uh, yeah, that was one of the things there. They were unanimous that he would want the last flavour in his mouth exactly. to be a whiskey. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you're able to do that, what a lovely memory. Like I think mm. in bereavement and in death, you know, when the family can tell the next door neighbour, look, dad died and it was terribly sad, but, you know, his last taste was his favourite scotch. You know, it makes people laugh. It, it really is a, a connection point, isn't it? Absolutely. And people re- will remember these things going forward, you know, eventually when when the grieving is over and they're just remembering those special moments and those special things that they shared together. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that takes us really nicely through to your fourth point, and I guess the transition for me to us talking about family care is your fourth point. Caring for the family, and the biggest part of that really is good communication with the family. I think it's really important to keep them informed as to what's happening, include them in plans and decision making, explain to them what's happening, and. Two words that I always remind people to do is and repeat. So just because your colleague or the treating team explained something yesterday, don't think that you won't have to explain it again today. These families, they're under stress, they're fatigued, they're worn out, they're sleep deprived, they're dealing with their own impending loss. Um, They may be anxious, worried, angry, um, feeling isolated. So... We need to let them know it's okay. If you didn't remember that, you know, if you're asking questions again, there's no silly questions. Keep them informed. And another thing about families, do the best you can to learn their names. Mm. Yeah. So know their names. 
Uh, you can ask Mrs. Smith, is it okay if I call you Mary? Mm. Generally, they will love that. So when you, you were there, you pop in, you can say hello to the patient, you can say hello to Mary. If you forget a name, that's okay, say, I think you're one of the granddaughters, aren't you? Or, you know, remember that, use their names, ask them their names. It just makes it so much more personable for them. Mm. One other thing in big, big hospitals, it's a big deal, is chairs. Oh, Find yeah. some chairs <laughs> for the family. Yeah. There's nothing worse than walking in and there's some their loved one is dying in the bed and they're standing around or they're sitting on the windowsill perched on the edge of the bed or something. Find some chairs. Speak to your line manager. Speak escalated if you have to. You know, we need to have access to chairs when we've got families in with their patients, their loved ones. So find a chair for them. Call them their name. Explain and reiterate and repeat Perfect. Yeah. One of the things I think that's worthwhile talking about is that often I have found in working with families as someone is dying is that families have never had the experience before. They're not sure what they're supposed to be doing or how they could be involved in things. We used to obviously do a lot of memory making um, in the paediatric setting, but you can definitely do that in the adult setting as well, can't you? You definitely can. You can normalise it as much as possible, encourage families to make memories Bring photos in, bring in the, their favourite pillow or quilt from home. Um, yeah, it's dying being part of the cycle of life, mm. uh, just normalising it as best we can and encouraging people to make those memories. And people feel uncomfortable just sitting around watching someone die, don't they? So I say bring in some toenail polish and even if it's granddad, mm-hmm. get the grandkids to do that, get them to moisturise their hands or mm. read them the paper, you know, things that give people a role that makes them think, okay, I did something nice for my loved one today, even though they're really unconscious and in the throes of dying. That's right. That's right. Encourage them to do so. And um, the patient, even though they might not be actively engaging, uh, I definitely appreciate that Mm. and feel they're reassured by that presence. We do things like um, handprints um, and it's beautiful when you get an opportunity to do intergenerational handprints, like Mm. putting some paint on Mm. the hands and then Mm. getting the family's handprints Mm. together. Um, I I mean, a whole range of things and it's it's not like there's a recipe or a cookbook for it, but Mm. I think, Liz, what you said is rang so true is that there's rules imposed on people all the time in hospitals. So a lot of the time there's a sense of needing to comply with some Mm. normal way of doing this by Mm. the family. So that's one of the things I really clearly say is there's no rule book for this. However, this is going to, if you guys want to have a party, bring in some food and celebrate their, their life. One, have one last party where you're all there. That's cool. And look, I I love the Polynesian families in particular. You know, like one minute there's no one there and the next minute there's 48 people, three roast chickens. (laughs) Like they really know how to come together as a community and to celebrate and death and to be part of things. And I think that's so true, Jessie, that people will turn to our nursing staff and say, can I kiss, can I kiss my mum? Can I rub, you know, like this is their family. Of course they can. This is their family. This is where we need to kind of be flexible with rules. We need to relax and be a lot more flexible, I think, and and prioritise these families, make sure they have a single room, you know, if at all possible, um, you know, encourage them to ask for things if they need them. 
religion is central to each individual's belief, no matter what our beliefs are, we need to remember that the dying person has the right to fulfill themselves in that way. So, yes, we have access to chaplains, so we can um, facilitate that, a chaplain of their choice, to visit them and to be aware that that can be very important to the patient. Yes. Absolutely. And I think that gives us a great segue into our fifth point, which is asking for help. And that help can look in like many forms. So it's realising that sometimes uh, care of the death and dying is a big team sport. It is. It is, Jesse. It is a team sport. You're right. It, it is. It, it's a community. We are a community looking after that dying person. So although we are talking to nurses directly, I think it's important to remember that to talk to your colleagues, ask for help from your colleagues, ask for help from your shift coordinator or team leader, talk to the treating team, ask for help there. If you're finding that the patient is not responding well to what's written up for, to, to assist in their symptom management, ask for help with that. So ask for help. The, most hospitals, like our hospital, we're very lucky. We have a specialist consulting palliative care team. We are available seven days a week, 24 hours a day, um, on the phone overnight, but in person through the day. We can be paged or contacted and we can come and help also. Ask for support when you are caring for that patient. I think more and more um, a, a lot of nurses find there's obviously time constraints, but Hold on to the fact that when you're washing and turning the dying patient, ask a colleague to help you or tee it up when you start the shift. Try and arrange a suitable time to have a, a productive time in there, turning that patient, washing them. Two people is much easier for the patient. It, it, it minimises the risk of any discomfort. It makes the care more efficient. If you are having a PSO or a wardie helping you, just remember that that person has no idea what's going on with that patient's body. So you can point out, look, Mr. Smith has um, a large bony lesion in his humerus or in his femur. So you're responsible for making sure that goes as smoothly as possible for the patient. So asking for help with cares, with talking and debriefing, talking with your colleagues... It's okay if you feel really tired and sad. That's okay. It's, oh, it's okay to feel that you could have done better. Talk about that with your team as well. Maybe we could have done this better. Reflect on the experience as the community, the nursing community. Listen, I hear this amongst even really senior members of staff where they still will ask me, is it okay to cry in front of a family? Is it okay to tear up? And I guess my standard response is that I've never met a family who don't love that in some ways. They feel like they're really seen and heard, um, that despite the fact that this nurse or doctor allied health has seen hundreds of deaths, they see what's going on for this family and their pain. My rule of thumb is, is if the family have to comfort you, you've gone too far. Exactly. <laughs> but because uh, it's not our grief. But what is, what's right. your experience around, I guess, professional grief? Oh, yes, I, I agree. I think, you know, you're going to feel it. If you, you know, you're going to have that empathy for the person. You might have experienced quite a journey with them. You might know them since they were first referred to your service or your ward. You might have seen them in outpatients. You may have a quite a good connection with that patient and their family. So 
it's 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 a reminder to ourselves and to them that we too are human and mm. it's preferable to show you know it's okay to show a little bit of sadness and a few tears because they can identify with that and they feel comforted by your humanness mm. rather than being robotic and automatic and letting things just brush over you yeah and it seems like a good point to plug um, in Metro North and Royal Brisbane Hospital um, we have peer responder programs that can be a great source of that asking for help isn't just about help with the patient it's about help without as Liz phrased it beautifully professional grief um, and yeah if you don't have that resource mm. mo most organisations will have a support resource that you can be directed to or just find a good human being that you work with and actually mm. just have a chat. That's mm. right. Someone you trust, yes. One, one of the things I think lots of people are interested in is um, if you die at home, is there support for people dying at home? Like it, does palliative care services just exist in hospitals or are they in the community as well? No, Liz, there are specialist palliative uh, care services in the community. We um, were very lucky. We have Metro North Palliative Care Service here in Brisbane. We also have Metro South, depending on what side of the river you live on. Um, we refer a lot of the patients in this hospital on to community services on their discharge. So the community palliative care service can, if the goal is to die at home, they will immediately become involved and visit and support the family through that time. Unfortunately, they're only able to visit for an hour or two a day, but with the backup of other doctors domiciliary services, um, the specialist palliative care service can ensure that things are going smoothly, symptoms are being managed well. Also in this hospital, um, for people who are at home but are still going through treatment, um, oncology treatment for example, we have an outpatient clinic here in the Royal Brisbane Hospital, so we see a lot of our patients twice a week as outpatients. And then if they end up coming into hospital, they will automatically come on up on our list in the morning and we will follow up as they're in patients to see what's going on, what's brought you back in, how can we help? Yeah. Terrific. I think, you know, palliative care, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because we know that people die, we all die. Um, and for some people it's way too young, sometimes it's children and sometimes it's right in aged care. But I think you've given us five wonderful tips of ways that we can do that. So I'm just going to um, rehash those a little bit, Anne. So number one was symptom management, and that was pharmaceutical and non-pharmaceutical non interventions. Yep. Yes. The second is to absolutely make sure that we see the person as a person first. Their diagnosis and even their death is very much secondary to who they are, so to maintain dignity. At all Absolutely, times. yes. The third one is recognising that death's um, approaching and that there'll be a collection of symptoms that will kind of guide us that, that this is, is the, what's about to happen next and so we should be preparing families for that. Preparing families for that and preparing ourselves too for any changes in our plan of care. Perfect. Yes. And number four is that, you know, for the majority of people, they're part of a bigger life outside of here and they have carers and family and friends, mm. um, the majority of people do anyway, and that we need to involve 
those people, as Jesse said, give this patient back to their families, mm-hmm. uh, empower them as much as possible to touch, kiss, sing, um, That's right. you know, do mouth swabs with a bottle of scotch, etc. That's right. Um, whatever is going to make sense yes. for that family. Within legal. Yeah, <laughs> of course. That's right. And the fifth one is never, you know, never hesitate to ask for help, not just from palliative care services, but also from the treating team and your colleagues. Colleagues. around you, whether that's in the hospital or in the community. That's right. Absolutely, Liz. Yes. Beautiful. On that note, I'd love to wrap up and thank you very, very, very much, Anne, for your time and experience and wisdom. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.